I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Why are some central banks increasingly focused on the relationship between climate change and the global financial system, while others remain relatively disengaged? What are the limits to how central banks can address these issues? Now, most of you are probably already familiar with the notion of the tragedy of the horizons. In a speech in 2015, Mark Carney, governor of the Bank of England, framed the risks to the global financial system that climate change represents. He called out, in effect, the egregious misalignment between our current policy horizon that extends only a few years forward and the need for a new decades-long horizon that starts to really bake in the long-term implications of climate risk. Well, one way to address this misalignment is a radical rethink to how the financial system, specifically the credit markets, funds the green ecosystem. You've probably already heard of green bonds, but the idea of green securitization means pulling together different assets, think green infrastructure projects, green mortgages, and electric vehicle auto loans, to sell them onto investors like pension funds with much longer investment horizons. To explore all this and more, I sat down with Michael Sharon. Michael is a senior advisor to the Bank of England, where he provides counsel and independent challenge on matters concerning governance, policy, and financial markets. Michael also co-chairs the G20 Sustainable Finance Study Group with China and is actively involved in domestic and international green finance activities, including bilateral negotiations related to the UK's economic and finance dialogues with China, Brazil, and India. Michael spent 25 years in the debt capital markets, where he specialized in the structuring, distribution, and trading of debt, which underpins his views. And obviously, the Bank of England needs little introduction, but to say that they have been one of the leading voices in articulating the implications of climate change to the financial system. I do want to note that Michael appears in this podcast in his personal capacity. His commentary addressing capital markets and green securitization reflects his G20 work and his own experience in sustainable finance. They do not necessarily reflect the views of the Bank of England. Welcome to the show, Michael. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure being here with you. Great. So I'd love to start out by touching on your own background because it's, it's incredibly diverse. You've gone from a background in the debt markets to a significant role within the Bank of England and certainly working with a number of multilateral efforts to address sustainable finance. How did that happen? How did that evolve? It's one of the most serendipitous um, and probably one of the best things that's ever happened to me in my, um, in my professional career. Um, I was working on the trading floor. I was doing um, leverage buyouts and a variety of other structured uh, debt product um, work in uh, London. And on the side, I would literally get up from the trading floor and run over to the London School of Economics and was working on a master's degree on uh, philosophy of all things. And uh, while I was there, I met um, one of the extraordinary uh, professors, um, Julia Black, who's actually now um, working with the bank. He said, I think you should talk to some people at the Bank of England. They could use someone with your background. And this is literally right after and right during the crisis. So I met with some people um, at the bank, and they were looking for people, and they had a stable of senior advisors who had experience in the markets, who could provide, as you pointed out, genuine challenge, You know, people that understood the market. And so consequently, discussions with a variety of people here in the bank, 
and I weighed up opportunities that were in both the uh, public market as well as other ones um, in the private sector, and I thought, this is just an extraordinary opportunity. How often do you get to work for the Bank of England? <laughs> um, and, and I might say, I thought we were the oldest central bank in the world, but actually we're the second. The, 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 the Ricks Bank nips us by 30 years. They are 1630, and I think we're 1660. But um, So anyway, um, it was just a serendipitous move while being at the London School of Economics, and I landed here. Wow. It's incredible. So let's talk about here. Uh, let's start by talking about the origin story of, of the Bank of England's involvement in climate change. Most people point to Mark Carney's tragedy, the horizon speech he gave several years ago as, as so the real kind of starting point. But I'm wondering um, how much predates that or predates you know, his tenure at the BOE? Most of it starts right about when Mark enters the bank. Mm. There was a little bit of work before then that was actually quite groundbreaking. Andy Holliday, the chief economist, was doing some work on this, and there were some people talking about it in the insurance side in particular. Um, I came into the bank probably, I think, a couple months after um, Governor Carney. And the great thing about a senior advisor, we have some set work that we're supposed to do, but it's also very entrepreneurial. So if there's work that comes up that um, you're interested in and you think you can contribute, you do. And so the other item that was brewing just before the governor's speech was um, the government put in place in 2008 the Climate Change Act of 2008, and they have the right to find out how sectors of the economy were adapting to it. And because the bank regulates the insurance industry, the government asked us, would we mind doing an adaptation report to find out how well the insurance sector is um, adapting to climate change? And we thought no one's going to really be interested in this, but it's an important topic. So myself and a couple other people, actually was led by uh, Matt Scott, who's now at um, Bayes, um, got together and we started doing some work. We gave out, we did interviews. We did a lot of work and research with the insurance industry, thinking no one would care. And we kept getting emails and calls from the United Nations, from other central banks that go, we hear you're working on some climate change work. Word got out quickly. And so all of a sudden there was a tremendous amount of pressure put on us. So consequently, the report we did, which was put out in 2015 on, again, the insurance industry's adaptation to climate, was a much broader report than we intentionally meant to do. It went through both the science, the markets, the risks on it, the, both the transition risk and physical risks. And this was bubbling up at the same time the governor was preparing to do the speech. So the two of them actually came out publicly pretty close to each other. And I think those two things really helped galvanize the work in the bank and captured the imagination, not only people outside, but also inside the bank. Hmm. I want to unpack that a little bit more. When you think about the parallel efforts from other banks, um, how would you characterize them? Because the BOE tends to, since it's the most prominent, sort of, uh, it becomes the sort of figure leading, leading this central bank effort. But the reality is a lot of other banks have been doing some heavy lifting, and particularly the People's Bank of China. I, I would say absolutely, that's absolutely correct. The People's Bank of China is, is arguably, they, they were the first out of the box. Um, they did an extraordinary job of doing roughly 100 years' worth of economic development in 25 years, but they also got 100 years' worth of negative externalities air pollution, water pollution, and it affects everyone, whether you're in the PBOC or an average citizen. And so they very quickly realized they needed to do something about this. And you make change in the real economy by providing the liquidity and the financing to do that. So they were out front. And what's interesting is about the work that we did, both the governor's speech as well as our insurance report caught their attention. And that's where the, the G20 came about. Um, they, they kind of sent a little message in through the FCO saying, we really like the work you're doing. It's really innovative. 
and we're going to be hosting the G20 for the first time ever, and we only want to add one new piece of work to the G20 agenda, and that is we want to put together the Green Finance Study Group, but we'd like it to be in the finance track. That's the track for the treasuries and the central banks. That's the track that has the funding, and it is very, very important in the G20 lineup. It really came out of those two pieces that the other central bank leading in this contacted us and kind of developed our partnership. Can you talk a little bit about why the Bank of England's mandate is unique relative to some other banks? And I guess I'm thinking uh, when you look at the Fed in the U.S., you've seen sort of recently a lot of micro-definitional sort of adjustment in terms of what their mandate allows them to do, what long-term means, you know, around climate change. And you've got a lot of different messages from them, which might be obviously specific to their mandate. No, the, the mandate of a central bank is absolutely critical to what they can actually do. We're incredibly lucky here at the Bank of England because we cover a much broader spectrum of objectives. So we have the standard things around um, financial stability, interest rates, safety and soundness of depositors, of um, annuitants in the insurance area. And that gives us a tremendous amount of space to look at where risks lie. I mean, and central banks, face it, are in the risk business. And if you think about climate, there's risks that are potentially could manifest in stock portfolios. Well, that's insurance companies, which we regulate. They're underwritten by banks and traded by banks, which, again, in our mandate. Then there's, of course, um, financial stability. If you have unorderly movements in markets, that's a huge financial stability issue. You know, we talk about the physical implications of climate change. And you're seeing them every day now about everything from droughts in California and floods. But you also have what we call transitional risks, which can actually manifest much quicker. And they are things like technology. What happens if large-scale batteries come on very quickly? What are the implications around debt through the OEMs and other industries, secondary, tertiary ones related to that? What if your next podcast was someone from CalPERS, um, Aviva, AXA, six or seven of the largest institutional investors in the world, and they said they were all going to be rapidly divesting out of climate-intensive stocks. Mm. The implications are quite profound. Mm -hmm. And so that's a financial stability risk. And you saw the governor led the, 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 the charge on the TCFD, which is about how do you get large corporations to start disclosing their, their carbon footprint, mm -hmm. which is a good data piece. So if you, as a central bank, view carbon as a risk, being able to disclose that and measure that allows you to determine which industry sectors are the riskiest and as a regulator of banks, we can see which of our banks are financing those most risky sectors of the mm. economy. Got it. So let's start out by defining the problem that you're currently working at the BOE, which is, you know, how do you incentivize the markets to fund sustainable infrastructure? It's a great question. It's a big <laughs> question. And there, there's obviously barriers and opportunities on both sides. I guess the first thing is just trying to quantify the problem. So there's been multiple estimates, but the one we tend to use is one from the uh, New Climate Economy um, report, which says there's roughly $100 trillion of sustainable mm -hmm. infrastructure that needs to take place between now and 2035. And that's not just renewable energy, that's water treatment, sewage treatment, you know, mass transit, the whole potpourri. And a large amount of that is actually going to be both here, but also a huge amount in the growing economies of Asia. And just to give you, and Majun at the People's Bank of China gave this as an example, even if China were to completely change overnight their carbon footprint, if the emerging markets of Asia and those areas don't, they'd be emitting three times the amount of carbon than China. So 
the, the task in terms of money that needs to be moved is huge. Um, the countries and the scale is massive. And so to your question, how do you motivate them? And so part of it is understanding what type of structures are robust, profitable. We know how do you move money hmm. is um, both an incentive thing as well as, is in some cases, a regulatory thing. What's also really important is if you're an investor and you're trying to determine where you want to put your money, you also have to do a little bit of horizon scanning on what investments you currently have and how they might be affected negatively hmm. under the movement in terms of understanding risks. So take, for instance, I'm holding up a glass that there's some water in here. This glass probably, let's say the BOE paid 50p for it. Well, there was carbon used in manufacturing it you know, from its energy. There was some water. It might have been packaged in plastic. The customers might have digital information that was maybe used or misused. It was transported. There's a variety of things that go into the cost of this. Now, if every corporation needed to price their products and all of their services and eliminate all the negative externalities that they're free riding on right now, so all of a sudden this glass goes to three quid. Mm -hmm. So money then goes to the areas that have sustainable profits as well. So infrastructure has great historical background, and Moody's and S&P have done some great reports on this, showing that the default rates are extraordinarily low. And once construction's finished, you've got stable returns. So understanding risk-adjusted returns and the implications of having to pay for free-riding negative externalities later down the road mm starts moving money in different directions. And that's part of where this discussion is really important for financial participants in the marketplace, understanding how quickly the cost of, let's say, maybe carbon is going to affect your stocks and bonds. Because ultimately, you have discounts to your bonds, and you maybe have to do, well, if you're, let's say, an auto manufacturer, NOx fumes, it's not just the carbon. So you have to do one of two things, because governments, including the NHS, are getting very good at quantifying the health costs associated with NOx fumes. So if you're producing those cars, either at some point you have to start writing checks to the national health agencies or you have to take free cash flow, put it into CapEx to change your business model. And that's the kind of framework that I think investors need to start thinking about as well as the corporations. And this gets to the governor's point about the tragedy of the horizons. You need to start thinking mid and long term. If you're looking at long-term transitions, of real economy sectors, that's not cheap. Hmm. And and some of the things just won't be sustainable. Some of the products we have, which could be more frivolous or whatever, that use large amounts of water or produce large amounts of carbon just won't be rational products any longer. And so those are the types of quantitative analysis that are starting to be developed. You're seeing really sophisticated asset managers going, all right, here's the good things that the products do, but here's the negative externalities that might have to get priced in do I want to be holding this in the midterm or even in the short term? Maybe I can put it someplace else. But anyway, I think uh, getting specifically back to your question on infrastructure, it's needed, hmm. it's stable, it's risk-adjusted well. And I think for those of us that have been financial architects, getting the structures right. So some of this has to be in emerging markets, getting the first loss pieces using multi-development banks and getting um, the, the risk return adjusted correctly for the subordinated tranches. And that's a lot of the work that we've done in the G20 in helping educate both not only the policymakers, but to be fair, a lot. there's only been a small group of people that have been involved in infrastructure financing, basically a handful of banks globally. But it's interesting. Why haven't credit markets and credit investors 
since they're more naturally suited to these kinds of infrastructure projects, why haven't they actually done more of them? Why why allow the banks that have a different duration? There's a basically a, a duration misalignment in terms of timing. Why allow them to do this funding? No, that's a very astute and a really proper observation. From a central bank's point of view, the mismatch on the maturity is actually a real risk in terms of financial stability. If banks, on average, have on-demand deposits, basically you could pull your deposits overnight if you want, and most of their bank financing is you know, three, four, five years max. Most of it's two, three years. Most of these investments ran from anywhere from 10 to 30 years. So to answer your question, traditionally it's been done by banks and held by banks. They've done syndicated loans. Um, and again, it's been a handful. But the amount of infrastructure we need to do now, $100 trillion, would dwarf the balance sheets of the banks. They just couldn't do it. Mm. So consequently, the real question we've been wrestling with in the G20, and actually it's been in financial markets globally, is how do you take loans? Loans are opaque. They're bespoke. They're mostly not rated. Um, how do you repackage or package them into a product that the debt capital markets would be interested in? And obviously that's one of the things both through sustainable ABS, green CLOs, all of these different types of products that we're doing some work on, a lot of work with the private sector, with the financial markets, and saying, think about the financial technology we have. How can it be employed to basically move these assets into the debt capital markets that replenishes the balance sheet, by the way, of the banks, lets them do continued lending in these areas, but also matches both the tenor horizon. So if you think about an insurance company or pension fund, they have long-term liabilities and they want long-term assets. So in many ways, it's actually perfectly aligned. Hmm. You're, you're starting to throw out a lot of acronyms. So <laughs> let's, let's go back and talk about them, and, and particularly the legacy of, of pooled structures like this post the great financial crisis, where a lot of that stuff was sort of looked you know, pretty negatively given the mortgage crisis in the United States. Why is this different when you think about collateralized loan obligations? No, that's a great question. And, and, and to be honest, any time you throw out an acronym that's even moderately related to this area, <laughs> immediately everyone just like, you know, their face crunches up and they, they, they recoil. Um, but I guess you know, these structures and are, are different, but more importantly is the underlying assets inside of them. So again, I'll use my glasses as an analogy. So during the crisis, they filled up an special purpose vehicle, which is basically a glass, and they filled it up with um, subprime and all-day mortgages, which were really horrible mortgages, and there was obviously fraud and a variety of other things that were put in there. What we're looking to do is basically put them into asset-based securities, which is basically, again, it's a, it's a vehicle which has these underlying assets in them, sustainable infrastructure and looking to push them out. And the big difference, as I said, is the underlying assets. The rating agencies have done a lot of work on this. There was one report that went back to 1983, I believe, all the way to 2016, and looked at both infrastructure as a whole, and the default rates were almost zero, and then it cut it out into sustainable infrastructure, and it's even lower. So once infrastructure is built, and by the way, there's plenty of risk in the construction phase, and that's a really great role for the banks. Not only do they, are they finance people, but they have engineers. They've been doing this for many years, and that's the area where, to be honest, the bridge loans, the construction loans don't belong in the debt capital markets. That's where you need the experts that can actually oversee the financing during those stages. But once they're completed, the default rates are very low. A good example is um, even with um, sub-investment-grade products like leverage buyout loans, in the 10 years since the um, since the, the financial crisis, there's been zero AAA um, tranches that have defaulted, zero, none. 
um, it's been very robust because you can actually build the models with even assumptions in them around both defaults and recovery rates. And so consequently, if you put good, sustainable assets that have very strong track records and, and cash flow performances in them, then not only are they safer products, meaningfully safer, but also they're long-dated and they help drive and transform um, infrastructure debt, which is traditionally just set on the bank balance sheets, into the markets where it fits uh, both in terms of your tenor. Hmm. So, and I, I know it's, all the acronyms are confusing, and it <laughs> does make people a little bit nervous, but there's been a lot of time spent um, looking at this, and it's not just ourselves. We've brought in rating agencies, institutional investors, um, large banks, and really been stress testing. The goal here is nobody has got the the silver bullet per se. It's about getting the collective input from the entire markets. And I think there's a real great interest, um, not just here in Europe, but also in Asia. I'll be heading to China tonight to be working on something similar to this. And um, I was even had a meeting earlier this afternoon about how can you take um, these types of assets in, in Africa, something like rooftop solar. We found a really great example in, in the G20 work where we were able to aggregate data on rooftop solar and sell it here in London to an institutional investor. So there's great opportunities around these, and they're just very different assets. I think that's the biggest takeaway you should have on this, that ultimately sustainable infrastructure has a different cash flow profile and default profile than sub-investment grade mortgages. On a related note, how much does all of this hinge on finding or establishing some sort of universal standard. I know you were part of the G20 Sustainable Finance Study Group uh, uh, that's working on this, and, and clearly the EU, the European Commission, is working to establish one, at least regionally. But you know, effectively, we've all got to agree on what green infrastructure is or what a green bond is or what green securitization is, what's eligible effectively. Um, how, how big a challenge is that? It's a huge challenge because everyone's absolutely determined that their taxonomy is the best. It's the right one. <laughs> and it, I don't care who you are. Everyone's got a view. And there's this, their views are always a little bit different than everyone else's. You know, so consequently, getting a universal taxonomy, which is the holy grail, um, I suspect will still take some time. So in the meantime, there are things you can do. One is you, you did mention you could get a regional, one regional set of taxonomies. But even then, I think it's really important to get all stakeholders in. You don't want to do this on your own. You want to get the buy side, the sell side, the regulators, the rating agencies, and do the best you can. You'll find that probably 90 95% of what most people view as green is green. It's really the fight around the edges, You know whether n nuclear power is green, whether clean coal is green, whether certain types of hydro are green, are going to be where the fights take place. Um, but another thing that we've been talking about both in the G20 and outside of it is in the meantime is a really effective uh, way of bridging to a, a taxonomy, first step is just transparency. So if you're a bank and you're issuing a bond, ultimately being very transparent about what's in there. So the buy side can very clearly see, and by the way, that's the nice thing about asset-based. If it's a ABS bond that's full of loans to electric vehicles, that's pretty good. And then ultimately, you might even have it with each of those in blockchain, so you can actually go in and look at very easily you know, that it's 500 Teslas based out of these many countries and things of that sort. So transparency is absolutely key. And I think technology will also help on that. Uh, the bank's been doing a lot of work in our fintech accelerator around machine learning, AI, blockchain. And you can employ a lot of this technology in the space we're talking about here. So if you're the sell side, you can very easily start toggling this information into machine language 
which then could be instantaneously understood by the buy side with their machine language. Basically, it's two definitions, understanding if you've got a match or not within certain parameters. Now, that's a little way off, but it's not that far off. And so there, there, there are bridging mechanisms till you get to a, an ultimate taxonomy. But I think for the time being, transparency is the first and foremost one. And both buy side, sell side, knowing clearly in their minds what they view as green. And in setting that definition, that'll help in that marketplace of um, discussion. Yeah, because it seems, at least right now, it's there's a tendency to conflate a lot of this language, whether it's green, sustainable, responsible, yeah. ESG, environmental, and social governance, you know, compliant. Um, and in fact, over the last 12 months, we've seen ESG compliance CLOs come out. I think there's two or three of them. Um, and a few people have found fault with them because they tend to be heavily exclusions oriented. Um, and I think it, it's sort of interesting because it sort of talks to the point that when finance thinks about this, they're thinking about it from a holistic perspective. They're thinking about uh, the behavior of a company. They're thinking about process. Whereas policymakers, central banks are thinking about outcomes. They're thinking about how do we get capital markets to invest in this uh, specific explicit sector, renewable energy or, or, or other. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that's important on that is we're, we're starting to see some good information um, correlating some of these areas, by the way, to, to better performance. Things around, I think I mentioned that Fannie Mae printed, I think, $26 billion last year of green RMBS, and it's performing better, even better than their standards. So getting good data on performance and defining it well is helpful. Um, as you pointed out, policymakers are focused on things like uh, central banks are focused on risk, trying to mitigate it. You know, the governments themselves are working on growth or looking on policy objectives, i.e. cleaner air, things of that sort. So that's, that, as you said, that's kind of our bailiwick. But ultimately, what's interesting, in a transitioning economy, a global one, across sectors, um, there's great opportunity here. So on the private sector side, I think being, for them being able to, on a holistic level, but also looking where they view opportunity for cash flow acceleration, as well as where does the degradation potentially come from. And this gets a little bit back to my um, discussion around the negative externalities. If you identify eight or nine of them on one of your equities or bonds, but you say, well, I think this one, if it manifested or crystallized, it would have large impact. This one, small impact. What velocity or speed is it coming at me? And I think if you look at things at risk to your cash flows, it, it is a really good way. So you can take the ES and G and then start actually mapping them down to what this means to this specific investment's cash flow is a, a more direct financier's way of looking at it. And a few of the funds I've spoken to are actually starting to do that now. Hmm. Without getting too wonky, I wanted to go a little bit deeper on the sort of the pooled structure of this. Because when I think of classically of, of CLOs, I think of two-thirds exposure, 60% exposure to AAA. I think of, you know, sort of a cascade of, of funding payments uh, and a lot of modeling around, you know, the integrity of those cash flows matched to the liabilities. Um, how does that fit in with a sustainable CLO where there's arguably less diversity, i.e. there's more concentration around green infrastructure. Yep. And, and that's a great question because if you think about the traditional CLOs, which mostly have corporate debt in them, they diversify them mostly by industry type, by jurisdiction, by a variety of things. And you have to think about what's the objective? What are you trying to get out of diversification? And basically what you're trying to have is not have correlation. So if one or two defaults, they're not correlated. So you're trying to mitigate defaults to mitigate losses within the pool. And so in the case of um, infrastructure and sustainable infrastructure, 
um, getting back to my citing of the, the, the um, different reports done by the credit agencies, you can see that the um, defaults and the recovery rates are meaningfully different. So ultimately, if you're trying to have, and oddly enough, I was working with um, a friend of mine in the, um, in the CLO market who I used to work with, Leverage Biodays, and he and I put together a model about four years ago when we started thinking about this. So here, a couple older, older guys, geeks, um, still modeling <laughs> CLOs, and we started literally doing the stuff you talked about. Where, what are you trying to do? You're trying to reach, reach outcomes where you have minimized defaults. Mm-hmm. That's the objective. And so we started looking at the default characteristics, the cash flow characteristics. And so consequently, you could look at um, just simply renewable energy, and maybe you do diversify it across geography. So you have it in Germany, France, UK. But the same level, and if you look at, again, a, um, an LBO CLO, they'll have up to 200, 250 assets in there, very diversified, just to get that. In those cases, you often have a default assumption in the model of anywhere from four to four and a half and even five percent and the recovery rate is generally around 88 80 85 percent whereas with sustainable infrastructure once it's complete default rate is almost zero and then the recovery rates are actually very good on the few that do default because most people still want their energy they still want their sewage treatment they still want all these things are important and governments step in so consequently to, i guess for your question on diversification the same level and granularity of diversification isn't needed, I don't believe, to get the same outcome of less defaults. Got it. Got it. I want to switch lanes a little bit and talk about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. They were originally sort of about national objectives, but clearly investors have have adopted them as an investment framework. How well do they lend themselves, it would seem like a natural fit, personally, to green securitization. Um, how well, in, in particular, do they lend themselves from a developing country perspective as well? No, I, I think they lend themselves really well, both not only to the debt side, but also to the equity side. And they cut wonderfully both in emerging as well as developed markets. And um, just before we came on, we were talking a little bit about a couple equity funds. And so what they're trying to do is, and this is an emerging markets one, looking for small mid-cap public companies all over the world in emerging markets that are actually trying to accomplish one or more of the sustainable development goals. And this is, you know, I think is very powerful both on the equity and the debt side. For private equity and for early stage equity, those are really helpful. And as you start scaling up, the debt is really what helps in, as you know, on a capital structure, generally anywhere from you know, 50, 60, 70% is debt. So it's really the, the, the meat of a, of a corporation. So if you want to start scaling up the sustainable development goals, being able to issue debt on companies that are really trying to achieve these, and then again, packaging and repackaging them allows the banks to continue to look for more opportunities. The whole idea is to create a circular um, cash flow um, movement from green into it. One of the German banks had done this with sustainable commercial real estate. And so they've been issuing out um, green-covered commercial bonds, and they pledge 100% of that goes directly back into issuing new green commercial mortgages. So again, and, and again, real estate is, is such an important area in sustainability, both in the emerging markets and getting it right, as well as in the developed markets. If you can start getting a handle on that, and in the UK we spend a huge amount of time trying to understand how we can make both our homes and our buildings more energy efficient. Hmm. Let's talk about the rating agencies. Yeah. Um, talk to me about why they're so important in this area. They've clearly been a little bit behind the curve. Um, over the last couple of years, they've caught up 
um, uh, clearly under some pressure from organizations like PRI, et cetera. But now you're starting to see ratings around green CLOs or green evaluations. Explain why they're important to this whole process. It, it really just comes down to the scale. If you want to finance $100 trillion, you need to move a lot of a lot of debt into the debt capital markets. And if you want to do that, you obviously need investors to buy it. And these investors need ratings. If you're a pension fund insurance company, you need somebody to go in there and take a look under, you know, what does this, what really makes this bond work? What's the likelihood of default? What are the um, characteristics? And to your point, I, I agree, they, the, the rating agencies have been fighting hard and done a very good job of catching up quickly. Um, and they are thinking about not only the traditional credit matrices, but they're also um, thinking about what are the ESG matrices that also could impact credit. Um, but ultimately, you would not get an institutional investor to buy any large amounts of bonds without a, a credit agency rating on it. So if you want to actually scale up, move into debt capital markets, you need to bring the uh, rating agencies with you. Hmm. Let's talk about the underlying loans for a second. When I think about these things, I think about LBOs, leverage buyouts, and I also think about sort of growth-oriented companies that, that need to borrow. Um, do you think that there's going to be any kind of perception problem on the LBO side? You know, typically, that tends to be specific to certain industries, but you're talking about financial arbitrage, a lot of leverage to do dividend recaps, cost-cutting, which carries you know, bad optics, i.e. negative social implications. At this point, we haven't seen any, any leverage buyout companies. I mean, there's a few of them that are starting to look at ESG, but we haven't seen any funds and CLOs specifically as you said there was a couple ESG light ones which are a bit like having a um, um, a filter but in terms of you know a particular private equity firm that's only buying sustainable companies and only doing that by the way I'd love to see that migration and and if it does I mean certainly private equity firms are always looking to maximize uh, their fees and, and, and maximize their um, their holdings and uh, to your point div re- recaps and all that type of stuff but for the time being really that hasn't been our focus it's really been around the infrastructure side the SME side um, the sustainable companies buyer would imagine it's a natural a natural flow as the entire global economy starts transitioning to being more sustainable focused just simply the private equity is going to have to go that way as well uh, you know you have seen some good VC work in this space and you're getting a little bit of PE around the side, but that's one of the areas I think is a really growth opportunity, and we looked at that in the G20 under the Argentinian um, presidency, about how do you mobilize private equity and venture capital to finance kind of these smaller mid-cap private companies in this space. Hmm. We'd love to have that problem that leverage buyout companies were had moved fully into there, but they're getting close. They're starting to they're, they're circling around the edges. Hmm. What critique would you offer for the finance community? It sounds like you've gone out and met a lot of different parts of the financial community. But um, if if the financial community could do more of certain things, maybe it's frameworks, uh, maybe it's move closer to a certain standard, maybe it's develop specific products, what recommendations would you offer? I think the first one is um, traditionally when you look at financing, and, and for years and years and years, it was a pretty standard model. You look at a company and say, well, does it have a margin on its product? Um, does it have a decent management team? Can it pay its debt? Does it have some barriers to entry? And, and, and those are all still absolutely essential criteria for evaluating a company. But now, instead of having a separate ESG piece in the banks, a separate 
literally what I guess I would recommend for them is you embed it into your modeling because they are risks. Because if you're financing a company that's like heavy in plastic or they make a product that puts out huge amounts of CO2 or whatever it may be, then that needs to be calculated. Because when I was doing this, we'd look out and do our modeling seven to ten years out. And all of these risks are captured well within the modeling period horizons that banks do for credit. So I think combining and or, or integrating fully and helping and, and, and training is a big piece as well. Part of it is to, you've got to make an assumption on everything. When you model out a company, how you think it's going to go 10 years from you have to make assumptions on GDP growth. You have to make assumptions on a variety of things. And you're going to have to make assumptions on how carbon might or might not affect it. You might have to make some huge um, assumptions going five years out based on um, upcoming regulation and things of that sort. But I think my number one recommendation would be these are real credit risks. Bring them into the credit analysis and actually make that part of the system. Don't separate it out as a separate piece. Got it. I've got one other question. It's uh, it's about advice given the fact that uh, a lot of uh, the audience are students. Um, what advice would you give them in terms of what to focus on or things to focus on when they're contemplating you know, some sort of vocation within sustainable finance or, or green finance? What's interesting is a lot of people talk about the, the negative implication. And to be fair, they're quite profound, but this is the greatest opportunity of their lives. You've got an entire transition of a global economy. It's not only just the alpha opportunity for investors, but for young people in terms of innovation, new solutions. Um, I was at a, a green tech conference in Berlin uh, last week and over the weekend, and it had some of the most stunning, interesting new stuff. I mean, literally cars that had drones that you, you could fly. They were all carbon neutral. Um, some of the products, um, plant-based foods. Basically, the things that are going to make it a cleaner, more transparent, survivable, sustainable global world and economy are fascinating, interesting, and irrespective of where you're coming from, whether you're, you've got a science background, whether you have a liberal arts background. You know, we were just talking about also you know, a lot of people code, but just understanding how, what are the biases that might be in that code, so people thinking through that. So there's opportunities for young people across the scope here to be a major part of making the world much better. And you're seeing it through a lot of the marches, a lot of the um, activism on campuses. And I, th I think being engaged across all of it is really exciting. It's really important. And um, being able to be a part of that transition, it has to be their future. Got it. Well, thanks. That was uh, fantastic. Thanks for uh, joining. My pleasure. Thank you very much. So it's been fascinating to learn about the Bank of England's efforts to better understand and articulate the systemic risks that climate change pose to the financial system, and also why green securitization could ultimately help in financing the transition towards a low-carbon economy. So I'd like to really thank you for your time and views today. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group, here today with Michael Sharon, Senior Advisor to the Bank of England. Many thanks for joining us on Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us, and special thanks to everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash responsible dash investment or look for us on iTunes.